Today, I welcome Dr. Timothy Cottrell, head of school at Iolani School in Hawaii. In this episode, I discuss how to create a world-class innovation center and how it was used for COVID tracking and testing by students, plus the importance of social development and respecting local culture. Iolani School has recently been named the number one best K-12 school in Hawaii. First off, congratulations. What do you think led to you winning this award? Those are rankings and the ranking algorithms used to determine where schools fall typically use college placement results, student and parent satisfaction testimonials, standardized testing results, program characteristics, that sort of thing. So I think it just reflects the quality of our programs, the student experience and what our students achieve. At the same time, you know, around the same period, we won another award, which I think says a lot about the school. In 2021, we were the number one large company to work for in the state of Hawaii based on employee surveys. And that, I think, really speaks to the buy-in, passion, and morale of our faculty and staff, which ultimately leads to the energy they have to dedicate to our students. That's amazing. And is that normal for schools to be ranked alongside other organizations and companies? Because we have, certainly here in the UK, we have best companies to work for, but they tend to be companies. But you're right, you know, why not a school? I think it's out of the ordinary. I also think, I mean, I know one of the things that's a huge topic with independent schools in the States right now, and this is why I think the NAAS conference is focusing on community. I belong to a number of kind of think tanks of heads of school and faculty morale is huge concern in schools right now, you know, and you can understand why the pandemic was very difficult and very draining for people. So you know, we, we feel really good that having gotten through that, folks here feel good about the place where they work. I mean, culture cannot just be created by a set of metrics and measurements. It's how you make everybody feel and it has to come from the top from you. How did you go about driving that care for the people that work for you and work with you to create an environment where you are the number one best place to have a job? I think administratively, right? You know, when we talk about how to lead the school, we use servant leadership models, right? And we got a couple of mantras that we say over and over again, you know, and one of them is people will care about what you know, when they know that you care. Throughout the entire difficulty of the pandemic, that was our biggest driver. We stayed in school. We didn't miss very much school. We had our kids on campus. We implemented a lot of safety measures that worked, But it made teaching a difficult thing. People wore face shields, face masks, had to wear headsets, you know, had to have amplification. It was really draining. Uh, But it was a great opportunity for us to model as an administration that our role is to help everybody do their job better and to care for everybody. And that was maybe just a crucible within which that really came out. And how much of it do you think it's the location? You're in this picture perfect paradise. Is some of that to do with the lifestyle or is it? heavily weighted towards the way that you just operate a school? I think some of it plays off aspects of the community here and really the values and the value system of the host culture within which we all live, right? We do, it's used in a really trite way, you know, just the word aloha, you know, that people say all the time, but here there's incredibly deep meaning to that, you know, and um, there are also other values like kuleana where you learn that It's not just what you do, but you always have to take into consideration how what you do affects the people around you, that you have a responsibility to others in your community, right? So I think part of it is that. Part of it is, of course, you know, everything I said about servant leadership and stuff like that, it's a paradigm. You adopt a leadership paradigm, but I think it fits very well within the culture of this place. 
And servant leadership and actually service is a big thing for American schools. It's not big in European culture, certainly not big in, in UK education. We don't lead with it again. Do you know what? We're here to serve others. And actually, we have to make sure that we're doing our part. Why do you think that is? Is it just our political setup or? I can't explain why the UK doesn't do that. <laughs> but, you know, probably part of it comes from you know, some Christian ethos and Christian values that, you know, permeated the early U.S. It being a servant or being in service to others is part of that. In education, people do recognize it's an aspect of experiential education that you would use to try to instill values, right, in students, you know, to have them be more compassionate, more empathetic, those kinds of things. On the school campus, you have the Sullivan Center for Innovation and Leadership. Can you really explain what that is and what's it there to do and who's it there to serve? So Sullivan is a 40,000 square foot innovation center. I would say the way it fits into the life of our campus is that it serves a portion of our student population, right? So we want to be a school where we have exceptional opportunities for students who want to pursue something in great depth. And that could be, we have a wonderful orchestra program and jazz program and theater and you know, lots of things like that for students who like the areas of STEM education, Sullivan's their place, right? You know, so our robotics kids, our computer science kids, our genomics kids, you know, our, our kids who want to do science research. It's a center for them. But the thing that differentiates it is that it's almost entirely project based, right? Or does things at a level that you would see mostly at university. How do you create and sustain an innovation center like that so it doesn't just become for the ones that are interested in necessarily technology? Because innovation can be creative. It's a challenging thing. You know, I'd say in terms of secondary education, most of what you put into a place like that, when you talk about innovation, these have been co-curriculars. They haven't been part of the core curriculum of schools. So from the outset, there's a space in the day conflict when you go to establish something like this, you know, the, the standard, I think, idea around innovation in STEM is that it can be woven into existing curricula or if physical space is actually created on a campus that a faculty will find a way to use it as part of their existing curricula, a sort of a, if you build it, they will come model. These are really limiting constraints on the student experience. So when we look to create it, I'll just kind of share our recipe. When, when we look to create it, we decided to take that head on and plan or look at the dimensions we needed to address in order to curricularize an innovation center. So we looked at merit, you know, that the programs that we created in this new educational space had to be meritorious versus other student options. We looked at time and program that new opportunities all needed to be available to students as scheduled courses. We curricularized the co-curricular. Uh, we addressed hiring differently, the people that we would put in the building. We hired engineers, scientists, filmmakers, computer programmers, and so on, all of whom had experience in the real world outside a context of education. We established a new department, the I department, our innovation department, and we created a new employment model for I department faculty members. So instead of a four-section teaching load, their requirements are a two-section load with the rest of their time dedicated to facilitating the use of the Sullivan Center 
by the larger faculty and in support of student projects. We created time for them to be innovative, right? That's a big component of innovation, right? You have to give people time. The final dimension is we addressed funding. We recognized as a school that this would likely be the most expensive educational paradigm on our campus. You know, it often reduces to one-to-one education. And so we had to account for that level of staffing. The other thing we did that I, I think helped us become really successful was we worked on defining or achieving alignment for the I department faculty. We took a lot of this from Olin College of Engineering. There's a wonderful book written by the founders called A Whole New Engineer. And we used it to define project-based learning as tackling messy real world problems that don't have defined solutions that require an iterative process. And most importantly, engage students in a way that puts autonomy, purpose, and mastery at the center of their experience. That's kind of the recipe we use to establish an innovation center on our campus. And then the final thing we did was create a relationship between this center and our community. We wanted to make sure it was very community-facing and serving. So we created STEM education, professional development programs, and community science programs that would serve hundreds of public and private schools in our state um, and engage thousands of students. And today that's been super successful. And, you know, it does lend itself to that idea that we have this wonderful resource, but really we want to use it for our students, but also recognize that it's a resource here to serve our community. And you're serving your local community, but also there must be public interest or benefit to everyone else outside of your local community nationally, but maybe internationally, because The thing with innovation centers and these hubs of excellence where you are trailblazing new ideas, you're realizing that what you have to provide these kids is a balance between knowledge and skills, but the skill piece, project-based learning is massive and it has to be fit for purpose and relevant for the employees in the world in which they're going to go off and make a difference to. Is it easy to package up what you've done and say, this is the model, we've learned this, this is what we think, this is how we're doing it. And for me to pick this up and go... Timothy, how can I now put this into my school and you have a model that can run? I mean, I guess easy is a relative thing, right? You know, I think it's easy for us and we have done this. We've had many, many schools from around the world visit us and tour the Sullivan Center. We are open source. We'll share everything, you know, and including our roadmap to how you do this. The difficult part really is how do you fit it into an existing school? You know, as I said, you know, you have these time conflicts, you have curricular conflicts. You have people who already teach and their jobs are taking up all of the student space. And these things do play out. In our case, we created this innovation center, a whole course catalog associated with it. Other departments, people in other departments, it really rankled them because all of a sudden students weren't there to take their courses. Simultaneously, we've grown our school. We ended up having to recognize that and our upper school has grown by a couple hundred students because we knew now we have the curricular space to support them. So I think that's the hard part. Money is a hard thing too. You know, we, you have an infrastructure at a school and I think that's why people more often try to work within these frameworks where they weave this stuff into existing courses, right? Yeah. What we did is very, very different. You know, and we built a 40,000 square foot building and created a department, hired a bunch of people and created a bunch of courses. That's a big commitment that a school needs to be able to make. And how do you go about measuring what an impact it's had, you know, on the students, obviously there's your local community, because with anything that you go and do, you feel it, right? And you can see some of it, but is there anything that you kind of would have a look at all your graduates who went off to college and went off for now, they're 
they're doing things and they were all influenced because they had the opportunity that other kids didn't have in other schools. And are they more employable? Are they getting into better universities? I'm just curious as to whether or not there is anything you have. We don't push every student through the Innovation Center. You know, it's self-selecting. And so for those students, for what we see them do in the program here, it's much more qualitative than quantitative. Project-based learning is like that, right? But there are some quantifiable measures we see. You know, we see our robotics program going to the world championships every year, right? Very happy that they most often win kind of the, the awards given to teams that are the most collaborative with other teams. We see in our independent study science research program, multiple peer-reviewed publications every year. I mean, this is graduate level publications of research, right? Graduate school level publications of research. We see our students creating their own businesses, you know, and coming up with products. And the whole program kind of works that way. When I, when I said autonomy, purpose, and mastery, I think adults often make the mistake that what we think is purposeful is purposeful to teenagers. So, you know, purpose is we're going to talk about climate change, right? maybe for teenagers. What's really purposeful for a teenager is their relationship to other teenagers. So we structured the innovation center so different courses are often working for each other. So let's say there's a science research course that this has happened. There's science research program where they're using microscopes and they want to be able to record things using iPads. And it turns out this is kind of hard because as soon as you get the slide under there, whatever you're looking at, if it's alive, will move and you're not able to get the picture you want when you put the iPad on there. So they hired the design and fabrication class to create a mount for an iPad on the microscope and 3D print it and fabricate it and use it. And so, you know, that's a great example of how we have that synergy and where students find a lot of purposes when at this age level teenagers, when they can find a way to serve each other. Big believers in that whole autonomy, purpose, and mastery as the core of the project-based learning experience. I adopt that within my entire workforce as a company. Actually, that's part of the way we structure professional development. It is around autonomy, purpose, and mastery. And again, people will shift and you know the purpose won't always be the same. As you said, You know, what is the purpose? We look for these altruistic kind of big purposes, but also we should be purpose-led. We want every child. We're all born unique. Let's not live our lives as a copy. You know, and it shouldn't be what I influenced that my son and my daughter should do. They should find their own direction and their own beliefs and their own North Stars to be able to drive that purpose. Is it hard trying to navigate the purpose with a teenager? Well, no, unless you try to, as you say, impose it on them, right? You know, if you're saying things like, don't you see the value in this altruistic ideal we're pursuing? Their lives are highly relational. And what's most important thing to you, the vast majority of the time, they'll say my friends, right? That's where they are developmentally. If you can build purpose into that dynamic, I think you get a real efficiency win when you're trying to do the kinds of things that we're trying to do. So then it makes it purposeful. It makes sense in the way they see the world. And then they're really engaged in the science or technology that you're working to teach them. I always talk about currency when I kind of talk to schools. And this is, this is their currency. What are we doing that's current to them? And, you know, there is a currency evolution as they go through life that will change and their purpose will be reevaluated. They might have their own anchors and values, but that's not purpose. Purpose is something that you feel and you want to go and do. 
I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I want to talk to you because obviously school isn't purely academic. It also fosters the social development of all your students. What role does your local community have in socialising and socialisation of all your your students? The local community and then the community of the school, right? Yeah, that's a partnership that schools should recognize perhaps more than we do. We're in the business of sort of co-raising children with their families. They're experiencing a community at home, a community that's the larger community, and then a community at the school. And all of those, I think, are the foundations that all of that becomes the foundation on which their social, emotional, and behavioral development occurs. You know, so in Hawaii, we have a wonderful community here. It's, I think, unlike any other in the world, it's a kind of cultural polyglot. There is, you know, speaks the language of many cultures. There's no assimilation pressure, as I would say there is on the mainland U.S., right? There's a dominant culture there that people are supposed to assimilate into. Here, there's many maintained separate cultures. And then we have underneath The host culture, which has, when you look at people talking about value systems for a sustainable planet, go to an island culture and look at their value systems because they had to do it. They've already lived in a very finite environment with finite resources and have had to figure out how to have a value system that makes that sustainable, right? So all of that is really wonderful. And then we have our own culture at our school and that should be for school leaders Perhaps the main focus of what you're looking at beyond something like I'm going to create this innovation center or something like that. What are you doing to steward a cohesive culture and experience for students day in and day out? Often something said of island cultures or communities and schools that are on islands that you live in a bubble and you don't necessarily feel the same impact and they have the same issues that are going on in, say, mainland America right now. Is it true or do you still have all the same issues and you still feel all the same pressures that all the movements are having, whether it's Me Too, Black Lives Matter piece? I mean, how much of that do you feel on an island or are you isolated? I don't know if I'd use the word isolated, but I would say we're different. I can give a number of examples about this. I mean, when we are looking to create a DEI curricular across the scope of the school, It would be a mistake, and we don't do this, to simply go to the mainland and adopt a program developed in the context of the mainland, something put out by NAIS or a university or something like that, because the main issues they're using for the framework of their DEI program is the history of the United States, you know, slavery and oppression of an ethnic minority and, you know, the kind of institutionalization of that all the way up to, you know, contemporary terms. Hawaii did not have that. You know, Hawaii has a different history. We have the history of a host culture that was overthrown, right? And fairnesses and inequities that have happened there. We have to create our own DEI framework because of the history of the place we have. And there's probably great overlap between the values. You know, we're still trying to create fair-minded, just people who, you know, are inclusive and have the same kinds of values. But you have to use a different lens to create it, right? So it is different, but I I wouldn't say isolated. Maybe insulated. Maybe that's 
more the word I was looking for. We can be a little insular, but that's also a characteristic, I think, of, of us and the other great schools in Hawaii. We are very focused on sending our kids out. Right? So our kids travel a lot. Um, and we, five years ago, took the leap and established a boarding program. So right in the middle of our campus, we built a dorm for about 100 students with the goal of bringing students from around the world to our campus so that even in our kind of insular little cultural polyglot that is Hawaii, we brought in more authentic voices of kids from other cultures. You know, a great example of that is we have Ukrainian students. And so we, you know, went through that, the tragedy of the war that was initiated in Ukraine and had students talk in our chapel about the experience that their families were having and the, the emotional experience that they were going through and things like that. So I don't think you get that without intentionality. Exactly. Yeah, it's deliberate, right? You're deliberately making sure that you're not isolated or insular because even though you are an island by geography, you're not limited by that in terms of ambition and say your intentionality to bring more diversity, richness and cultural kind of awareness from around the world, which is fantastic. I know that um, Iolani was involved in helping to track COVID variants in NY. How did that come about? So, you know, this is part of what I said about the Sullivan Center for Innovation. We established it and very much made it community facing. I mean, we, in the first years that we had it, we let everybody know that if you were going to do something related to innovation, you could use our space for free. So we hosted maker fairs and we hosted startup, you know, venture capital fairs. I mean, you know, people came and used it and it really established, in addition to big PD programs, the relationship with the community. So when the pandemic started, the very first thing we did was we kind of turned Sullivan into a factory. And we fabricated about 17,000 face shields that we gave to the community when that was a very scarce commodity. The whole kind of, here's a problem, we can roll up our sleeves and do it, we were totally prepared to do. And, and then that just continued. I mean, we became a CLIA certified testing lab. We are a site for vaccinations. We've had many, many vaccination clinics. Then the Department of Health, because of that kind of legitimacy, the Department of Health reached out and included us among the genomics research labs that could do COVID testing. So we were part of the operation to do variant tracking. You know, we would get samples. Our kids would sequence them and identify which variant it was. And, you know, part of like everybody was doing part of the system of trying to track which variants were evolving right within your community. What was the response from your community to being involved in such dynamic, impactful, real world research? I think it further validated, you know, for everybody that it legitimized, maybe this is why we establish a place like this. When we say we want to tackle messy, real world, community centric science projects, which is what we do. We, we have a number of big initiatives like that. This just brought that home. Right. And for the students. As part of what we do, it's very much like a university. We have a, a university level IRB process. And for the students, education has changed in the last couple of decades in that the application of knowledge has pushed its way down from graduate programs into the undergraduate world, right? You know, it used to be when I went to school, you had to learn knowledge as an undergraduate and then you went to a graduate program and you applied knowledge or you went to a professional school and you applied it. That's changed. Undergraduate programs are now uh, very infused with undergraduate research, internships, all of these kinds of things. So that idea of as a 17 year old or a 16 year old being actualized enough to say, I can do 
that kind of research is the community response. And it is what we wanted and what we desired, right? You know, a real, we can do that kind of attitude among our students rather than thinking, well, that only happens at university. We're also caught in the moment during COVID and the pandemic. And, you know, everyone's doing what they can do. It's only often after such an event, because you're driven by adrenaline of the moment, that you look back and reflect and go, wow, we were part of something that was incredible. You're talking about, you know, 16, 17 year olds getting involved in firsthand exposure to the application of real science. Have you had chance to reflect and go, by the way, everybody, you do know we were part of history. <laughs> well, it's what we're trying to achieve, right? You know, when you, in the best possible sense, you're rubbing up against the tradition of education in science, in the sciences, that is predicated on being a simulacrum of real science. You know, we all did this. We go through and here are the 10 labs you have to do for chemistry. And you're repeating some lab that's been done a million times, right? And it's a simulacrum of real science. What we have done, what we've been working to do is to say, no, 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 no. 16, 17, 15, 18 year olds, they can do real science, right? And that was just a nice example of this. This was not play science or a simulacrum of science. This was, we're going to do the same thing that the medical community in our state is doing, and we're going to help out because we know how to do it and we have the facilities to do it. And we have kids who have been educated enough to be able to play that role. Yeah, no, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's a really fantastic story to be able to share and to be able to talk to you about. I've got one final question for you, and I'm, I'm asking all podcast guests this, this year and onwards. If you were to look into your crystal ball, what would the future of education look like to you in 2050? I mean, you know that chat GPT is like the thing everybody's talking about now, right? It's an artificial intelligence engine that you can pose a question to, and it will write a very good essay from, okay? The concern is students can just ask this thing a question and then turn in the response as their homework. And so people are, you know, New York City just banned it, okay, the use of it by students. And, and a different way of looking at that, if you're more of a futurist, is whoever said that sitting down and writing an essay with a pen and a piece of paper was the be all and end all of how people developed cognitively. So here's something that's changed. Let's just use it as a tool and say, change our paradigm. Say to kids, use chat GPT, get an essay. You know what your assignment is? Now your assignment is to create the counterpoint and critique the essay and do that, right? You know, and, and so things will change. I think, so there is change going on. Ultimately though, I think education is fundamentally a relational dynamic. And so I don't think that'll change. I, I think people get too often caught up in cognitive outcomes, you know, subject area outcomes. That is a fraction of what good education is. Good education is helping to grow the self of young people and helping them become self-actualized and admiring them and mentoring them and correcting them. And, you know, all of the things that we do as human beings, the pandemic in a way answered the question about online learning, right? You know, the, the studies that show the tremendous growth in mental illness among students during the pandemic. And then the mean variable that was found is it's a loss of connectedness. It's a loss of connectedness to community, peers, adults, those things. We need that as humans, right? And so, you know, I'm going to be a little dubious about the virtual world. You can get connectedness to a degree in a virtual environment, but, but I think ultimately 50 years from now, we will still have humans teaching other humans. And some of the most important components are 
how we know each other, how we interact with each other, how we do all of those things, right? In addition to, you know, maybe we'll be teaching in 50 years that we actually understand gravity. Who knows? Technology's got this exponential curve due to Moore's law. It's, we're not going to see that slow down anytime soon. What we can't be as slaves to the technology. It's 24 seven. We're connected. We're losing our ability to be critical of the stuff in front of us, but we can't turn it off. We've actually got to live with this. So how do you teach your kids to live with it and learn? It's like when the phone came around, then the smartphone came around and then Google, everyone's going, well, no, you can't give them to it. Actually, we got to teach our kids good behavior. Honestly, we're an iPad school. We give into everything. The point is empowering you to use it smartly and understand it, not to prohibit it. It's a tool that you bring into augment a lesson to make, you know, you talk about, you know, lifelong learners. Schools talk about this, but it's true. You know, you want lifelong learners who are constantly curious about knowing and finding out and discovery and challenge. And, you know, technology is just one of those things. My son will talk to his Google Home. You know, that's his thing because he's that age where he's just grown up talking to a device and he has conversations. This can often be misunderstood. When I look at a lot of students who are doing three things at once, they'll have a maybe a computer screen in front of us where they're doing something to get their iPad next to them. They've got headphones into their iPad plugged into their heads. They're looking at multiple things at the same time and they're getting a lot done. There's a kind of learned productivity that is a generational difference that for us, we're looking at it like, whoa, that's really bad. You know, they're not paying attention. Well, in fact, maybe they're paying more attention than we're capable of paying attention, right? This is native to them. We always look at through the old eyes of our generation and go, oh, you know, we didn't do that when we were your age. But no, if we were their age right now, we'd be doing exactly the same thing. What we have is experience and wisdom. And maybe our job is then to allow them to do this, but we need to understand it too. So I share that view with you. These skills of like critical thinking, those are the ones that, you know, are timeless. And that's what we're struggling against. You know, we're not really struggling against technology. The biggest issues we have is that we're inundated with bad information all the time and confirmation bias all the time because these engines feed us the story that they have recognized we want to read over and over and over again. More than ever, we need our students to have critical thinking skills to step back and say, am I being manipulated? I, I, maybe I need to look at another source of information outside of the one that's being fed to me. All I ever say to my kids when I go and talk to schools as well is that you have to take back control. You know, it's like notifications. They control it. The, the dopamine, it's just, it's a vanity hit that you go, I need to react to this. Amazon have got a deal on. I'm like, it's disruptive or something's happened and we trust it because it looks genuine. We fill 24 hours full of activity. And I think this is the great pause we've got to have. This probably legacy to lockdown is the mental health issues in our children and us. And we've got to learn to go, how do we reconnect with humans, get that time back? That is an area related to technology. I mean, we're in the middle of a gigantic experiment that is going right and going wrong in terms of all of the kind of social media and information technologies with which we're being inundated. We need to focus on kind of the metacognitive aspects of that, teaching kids how to think about what they're thinking about and gaining those tools. And we're just, you know, running as fast as we can alongside the deluge of this change. Dr. Timothy, thank you so much for finding the time. Aloha. You know, thank you very much for spending the time to chat to me today. 
You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.